Let's see if this works. Yeah, this is much better. Okay, well, we'll just stick with the eternal mic, not with the blue ball. Um, I don't know why it's called a blue ball, but um, we're going to be talking about uh, Mildred Pierce for most of tonight. We talk, and it's going to be a nice transition between Dunity into Mildred Pierce. Anyone see the HBO special of Mildred Pierce? I did research that there was one. Okay, so maybe that was the research just did. <laughs> yes, it was a five-part miniseries on HBO. I have not seen it. One of the real dangers of that is it's remaking a classic starring Joan Crawford, which at some point we will look at, um, which is a classic film, Mildred Pierce, um, in many ways more popular than the book itself. But you have to understand that Cain was responsible for really a trilogy of great hard-boiled novels. He wrote many novels, but he's most best known for a trilogy. One of them is Mildred Pierce. Anyone know the other one? I'm not doing my job here. What's the other one? Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity. Disco. Yes. Disco Duck. Double Indemnity. What's the third one? I've mentioned it in this class, too. This one I won't be as upset if you don't get Double indemnity, I would cry. The postman always rings twice. Oh my gosh, he looked inside his book. It's awesome. The postman always rings twice. And that is the one that inspired Camus to write The Stranger. So one of the great existential French texts was actually inspired by The Postman Always Rings Twice. And Kane was responsible for a trifecta of these films, all of which were not only classic novels, but became classic Hollywood films. The Postman Always Rings Twice with John Garfield and Lana Turner is amazing. We'll talk about that a little bit tonight. Um, Joan Crawford in Mildred Peace is a masterpiece, as is, as you've seen, Double Indemnity. So there's a constant theme running through Kane's work that we're going to talk a little bit about tonight in relationship to Mildred Pierce. But before we do, I want to return to Double Indemnity. Um, and there was a good point brought up by uh, Paul Bond on the question of, yeah, who is this guy? Can someone say that? I like that. Um, this question of the death that happened at Double Indemnity at the end of the film that we never see. There's an, actually an ending that was filmed by Billy Wilder that there's only screenshots of, and let's find it right now. Um, and let's take a look. The gas chamber scene. Excellent. You look that up? Let me get on my knees. Hell, hell. See that? I know. Okay. You can't see that on the radio, but I really was on my knees. But let's take a look at Double Indemnity Gas Chamber Scene. And scene, Double Indemnity Scene Gas Chamber. And this is interesting because uh, there's this alternative ending, and here's some stills from it. And this is actually Walter Neff. And here you have who? Keys. Keys. And you got Neff waiting to be executed in the gas chamber. This is actually a radically different ending from the ending of the book. The ending of the book actually has both Walter and Barbara Stanwyck's character, a Phyllis Teacherson, doing a double suicide, which is interesting. So that's actually, they go down the line together, double suicide. The movie originally ends, as they filmed it, with this famous, this is one of the most famous missing scenes in Hollywood, with this crazy gas chamber scene. Now, how does the film end as we saw it? He says he loves keys. Love you too, keys. He's dying. He slumped on the floor. He's kind of got his way. He lights a cigarette. And he says, I love you too, keys, right? 
Have we talked at all about the relationship between Walter and Keys? Should we? Yes. What do you make of this? Father-son, right? There is this real kind of sense of respect that Walter has for Keys. Yes. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Awesome. Talk about that a bit. Well, um, I don't know. It's like Walter's obviously good at his job. He sells the um, insurance pretty well. And he, Keyes even says he has the highest numbers of anyone in, in the department. And he looks relatively young still. And he's obviously well articulated. And then we see Keyes, who is like like the grandfather of insurance. Like his little man like speaks up whenever there's anything wrong. Yeah. And it seems like he, Walter, learned a lot of his tricks from Keyes. Yeah, and there's a point at which actually Keyes goes to Walter, right? And what he basically offers, what does he offer Walter? Oh, a better job. Yeah, his oh, job. Oh, yeah, his job. A less paying job. Well, it's more uh, prestigious. Why is it a better job? He's using his head. Because you use your head, right? Yeah, at the end he says... Uh, I thought you were smarter than all the ones in here, but you're not. You're just a little taller. Yeah, exactly. It's brilliant. He's like, not to think that I thought you were that much smaller. In the end, you're just a little bit taller. So that kind of roundabout abuse. But who is this whole tale being told to? Keys. From the beginning, right? And he tells, he, Walter says a few times throughout the narration, I love you, Keys. Like, there's a little bit of a man crush going on here, right? I mean, the relationship between Neff... It's a little bromance. A little bromance, exactly, right? My little brony between these two. <laughs> you can feel it, right? And the fact is, is I'm not saying, you know, I'm not reading this like you could read other Hollywood films where there's kind of, you know, obvious gay kind of relationship happening. But you can't ignore the fact that Neff's relationship with Keyes completely informs how we understand Phyllis Dietrichson, right? Phyllis Dietrichson, according to Neff, comes out as the, pretty much as the villain in this. But we have to remember, she kill anyone? Nope. No, right? What does she do? What was her major? She manipulated everyone. She, yeah, she manipulated everyone. She was able to work them against each other. So it's interesting. And what's more interesting, too, is when you think about this scene at the end with Walter Neff, and we talked about this a little, a little bit last week, so let's return it. Why might have this, there's a lot of reasons why this scene might have been cut. Just kind of going on what you know, that what this scene basically did is it took you through Barton Keyes watching Walter Neff be executed. That's basically what the scene is. And you could see a pretty good shot of it here. Why would they cut this scene? Showing death. This was made in 1944. So, I mean, no. they were showing death, I guess they weren't. Showing death, but... I mean, they didn't show uh, Mr. Diedrichson getting killed, and so I figured that they wouldn't want to show death. Well, what are the first... Well, they did show her getting shot. And you could pull up oh, one yeah, of these yeah. chairs right here. These are like little nice rolly chairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did people in America know that, like, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating, we oh, talked yeah. about it last week, is the Holocaust, right? 19, this film came out in September of 1944. September, I think, 9th to be exact. It was basically from 43 up and until the time of this film made that it was not only hinted out, but generally understood that the Germans, particularly the Nazi party, was executing Jews en masse in gas chambers. So there's that. Not only the fact that we know Billy Wilder was not only German, 
but he escaped from Germany because he was a German Jew in the early 30s, running basically from the fascist regime, which would prove all of everybody's worst fears true, right? So there's that. I mean, there's this whole element to this film of modeling almost or directly paralleling what's happening in, in Germany in some horrific ways. Now, I'm not saying that that's why it was cut, but, I mean, there's a reason to think that that parallel might be way too deep for the public at that point. But why else? Why else might it have been cut? I think it, it would be a really sad ending. Like, I know it's a mm. hard-boiled movie, but the other ending seemed happy. And it's like, putting I'm an getting into, <clears throat> Putting it into our favorite character. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, that whole sick relationship we as the audience have with Walter. And, like, you know, we're like, oh, I love you, Keys, and we can laugh, and I'm smoking a cigarette. And, you know, this guy who just murdered two people, we're kind of laughing with, and, oh, it sucks <laughs> that he's going to go to the... But what else? Brenna. I feel like it kind of would have dismantled the dynamic of the relationship a bit because he, I mean, throughout all of it, like, while he's narrating, it still seems like he's kind of searching for Keys' approval the whole time. He's like, but you got to understand and stuff like that. And even at the end, even though you can tell that he's disappointed in him, um, he's still, like, he's still, like, is empathetic and, and is, like, trying to help him out a little bit, like, get him an ambulance. So I feel like it just kind of would have messed up, like, some of the dynamic that was built throughout, throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, and also it's a pretty dark way to end a film, right? I mean, this film is dark enough if you start thinking about it long enough. Like the scene with Phyllis Dietrichson after having strangled, Walter strangling, and you're looking at her face, and her face is kind of gleaming with joy and ecstasy at the idea of someone being killed next to her. Like there's some really kind of, I would say, intense scenes. But this might even take it to the next level, right? The ending the whole double indemnity on the darkest of dark notes, you know, mass execution. I mean, not mass execution, but this execution of Walter. So, I mean, there's, there's this kind of sense that almost the film itself was getting out of its own, was getting out of control in its own way in terms of death, macabre, and this kind of really dark. It actually is right. It ended on a bit of a, an up note. And we still hadn't fully come to terms with Walter as this... We don't really know what to do with Walter, right? We want to like Walter. He's the sales insurance man we all want. But at the same time, I don't know where this scene would have taken it. It's a very interesting kind of point to think about this scene. And scholars have written extensively. James Nairmore, in the, the first chapter we looked at, he goes on and dedicates part of chapter two to this very question and to looking at it and to thinking about why or why not um, this scene was cut and what it means, and, you know, it's, it's conjecture about what, how the film would have itself been different. I mean, it was already considered, if not the greatest noir, one of the, but this would have even set the tone that much more intensely, which is, I mean, interesting. I would, I mean, this is one of those things that you hope at some point comes, someone finds it, you know, someone's able to see it, and they're able to restore it. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but it's fascinating. Um, other thoughts about Double Indemnity? Things that we didn't, well, there's a lot we didn't talk about, but other thoughts about the film. One thing I want to look at and talk about as we transition to Mildred Pierce, and I have the book here somewhere, yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about Phyllis Dietrichson, right? And Felix Dietrichson's reasons for not basically wanting her husband to be around, for her planning the murder with Walter to begin with, etc. What are some of those reasons? Let's just recap that. Wouldn't let her get a divorce. Wouldn't let her get a divorce, right? What else? 
abusive relationship. Abusive relationship. At times, he not he hits her around, right? What else? He cares more for the stepdaughter. Yeah, loves the stepdaughter, or yeah, his daughter, um, Phyllis's stepdaughter. Exactly. Is it, was it, I? Well, my, I thought her intentions were, were from the beginning to do this. I mean, killing the mother. Isn't that not? Or do you think that she, these feelings towards the husband came about after she had already? Well, we know, according to um, Lola, that she did kill the mother, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't know what her relationship ever was with the husband, right? Before. Yeah, I mean, we get that weird moment at the end where she really did love Walter in that last second before mm -hmm. he shoots her in the stomach, right? Yeah. I really did love you. I just realized. And then, bam, <laughs> shot. That was a weird moment. What else? Um, he, the husband changed the will. Yeah, she was written out of the will in terms of money. And it's a really interesting recurring theme, and we talked about the kind of trilogy, hard-boiled trilogy by Cain. It's a recurring theme in all these books, and we'll look at it, transition into Mildred Pierce. But the book we're not going to look at, and I wish we had time too, because it's a great one, The Postman Always Rings Twice, it is very similar in some ways to Mildred Pierce and also to Double Indemnity. The woman in that story, the man and woman who work at this restaurant, on this kind of side street outside of L.A., plan to kill the husband, right? And what's interesting is John Garfield, who plays the, the kind of stranger who walks into the restaurant, and Lana Turner, who brilliantly plays the wife who wants to kill her husband, actually talk about this and decide, you know, he, John Garfield says, we don't have to kill him, we can just leave. And Lana Turner and her leave together, but what Lana Turner starts figuring out and going through is all the things she worked her whole life for this man in this restaurant. She's going to be left with nothing. She's going to be have nothing. And as a woman in this world, this puts her in a completely, you know, untenable situation to go off with this drifter to hope. And she doesn't want to start from nothing. So kind of like we saw with Phyllis Dietrichson, at least to that last moment, it wasn't about love. It was about her within a world dominated by men to understand her position, right? And to actually, you know, obviously murder is not the best route. I don't think we're arguing, hey, this is the one way you position yourself as a strong woman as you start murdering your husband, right? That's the whole Walter Neff. Do I look like a salesman that says, sells, you know, you got a husband you want to knock off? I mean, that's a great speech, but think about that as a context for the situation not only Phyllis Dietrichson finds herself in, but if you ever see Postman Rings twice, the woman character in that, the same thing. And the femme fatale becomes a little bit more compelling and complex because there's a reason and a cultural kind of context for why she's acting the way she's acting and why these questions come up. She's not just evil, right? There's a cultural frame around and by which she's acting, which I think in some ways is a beautiful segue to Mildred Pierce, right? This whole book is about Mildred Pierce and Mildred Pierce's relationship to not only the depression, but her kind of, you know, loaf of a husband, her nutball of a daughter, right, Vita, who we'll talk about at length, but also her position as a woman of trying to kind of basically provide for her family. I mean, and there's this really interesting narrative in Mildred Pierce, I think, that it's kind of hinted out in Double Indemnity and hinted at in The the Postman Always Rings Twice, but really comes to be in Mildred Pierce. And it's probably out of the three why I chose that. We still, I mean, I could have chose anyone, but I'm very interested in the kind of development of Mildred Pierce as a character. 
and that kind of vision of the hard-boiled woman really going to the next level and being drawn in more complexity than I think we've seen it yet. So that's where I want to start our discussion with Mildred Pierce. Does that make sense? Okay. So one of the questions I have right away is if we have the same version. I have an older vintage version. You guys have the new. But I think, let's just make sure and see if our pagination is right. Some of you are going to have totally different pages. But let's just start. I'm on page three, chapter one, in the spring of 1931 on the lawn in Glendale. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so we're basically paginated right. Suzanne, you're the only one who have a different pagination. Okay. So let's look at that first chapter. Let's look at that first page of chapter one, and let's just kind of frame this out a little bit, because this is taking us back to the moment of Ask the Dust, in fact. So it's the same time, same place, same bat channel, same bat time. And who wants to read starting in the spring of 31 on page three? Okay, Connor. In the spring of 1931, on a lawn in Glendale, California, a man was bracing trees. It was a tedious job, for he had first to prune dead twigs, then wrap canvas buffers around weak branches, then wind rope swings over the buffers and tie them to the trunks to hold the weight of the avocados that would ripen in the fall. Yet, although it was a hot afternoon, he took his time about it, and he was conscientiously thorough, and whistled. He was a smallish man in his middle thirties, but in spite of the stains on his trousers, he wore them with an air. His name was Herbert Pierce. When he had finished with the trees, he raked the dead twigs and branches into a pile carried them back to the garage, and dropped them in a kindling box. Then he got out a mower and mowed the lawn. It was a lawn like thousands of others in Southern California, a patch of grass in which grew avocado, lemon, and mimosa trees, with circles of spaded earth around them. The house, too, was like others of its kind, a Spanish bungalow with white walls and red tile roof. Now Spanish houses are a little, too, are a little outmoded, but at the time they were considered high town, and this, and this one was as good as the next, and perhaps even a little better. Good. This struck me right away, especially after watching um, Double Indemnity. Anyone remember, or is any resonation between, do you hear anything resonating between the two? Is it the same kind of house? It's the same exact kind of house, right? Remember? An outmoded, 20s-style Spanish tutor, right? And it's funny that in Kane, the house in this development, which we learn a lot about, what do we know about this development? It was uh, founded by... It was founded by Pierce, so founded by the guy who we're going to learn more about in a second. What else do we know about it? Someone other than Connor. What's that? It's failing. And why is it failing? Depression. Depression, right? So we had this huge economic boom in the 20s, right? And then as soon as 29th hit, we didn't even talk about this great stock market crash, but they do in the beginning. Everything goes, right? And their fortune, he had, he had invested how much in what? 18 AT&T, a stock in AT&T, which I didn't even do my research on. I should have. Is that the AT&T of the phone? It'd be interesting to know if it is. And he had a ton of money, lost it overnight, right? So you have this kind of moment moving into, and then that con contextualizes where Mildred is, where this family is. What do we know about Herbert? He's cheating. With who? An ugly wolf. Well, I don't know if she's ugly. What do we know about it? What's the defining characteristic of her? She's dirty. She's dirty. <laughs> Maybe. That's what she said. She never wears a bra. 
her breasts, they always talk about her flopping breasts. They do, right? <laughs> they do. Yeah. And it's like, like that's pretty racy as a, in a book of this time. It's like, and there it's like, and Mildred Pierce is hardcore. She's like, if you need an extra bra, I have one, right? Like, you know, get your breasts together, right? Literally. <laughs> um, but seriously, right? So there's that. What else do we know about them? And the moment. Where are they? What's happening? Let's set the stage a little bit. Two kids. What are their names? Dita and Ray. Dita and Ray. For right. short. Ray for short. What is what is Ray short for? Something really weird. I didn't understand. More that. Ray, right? More Ray. Or they pronounce it wrong. It's actually what? Mora, right? But they call it more Ray. And there's that moment when Ray dies, which is so sad, that they note that she never actually had she never I mean if you didn't catch to the middle of the book, you're not up with me. <laughs> But she never actually had her name pronounced the right way. There was this mo terrible moment where the kid was so poor and so, like, neglected that they never even pronounced her name right <laughs> until she was dead. I mean, think about that. Like, what an epitaph. No one pronounced my name right till I was dead. Like, that's a neglected child, okay? Well, it actually reminds me of something. So that's actually happened to me. I'm serious. My name on all my documents is James Groom. Now, I was the sixth of seven kids, right? And so, anyway, my mother by that time, Shanty Irish, right? We had so many kids, she didn't remember. She actually thought my name was James Groom, but she put my name, so I thought it was in James Groom, and so 27 years old, I go to get my birth certificate, and I said, my name is James Groom. They said, we don't have a James Groom. It's like, James Groom, I was born in Rockville Center, Long Island, here it is. And she's like, no, we have a Jimmy Groom. So my name is actually literally Jimmy Groom, not James Groom. But because my mom at that point really didn't remember, and I don't know if it was when they did birth certificates earlier on when they had them, they just took your word for it. But when they did the documentation, my name is officially Jimmy Groom. So me and Moira, or Ray, have a lot in common. Anyway, that had nothing to do with Mildred Pierce, but I figured I'd share with you. It's a good takeaway, though, right? If you aren't named what you're named, I can do a lot now to change my identity. So identity theft for me would be simple. Anyway, let's move beyond that. What else do we know? Set the stage for me. What's he that? Doesn't job, yeah. He doesn't he have a job. What? Yeah. What do we know about Mr. Pierce? He's lazy. He's cheating with a smelly, brawless woman. <laughs> right? All this money he got from That's right. And I love that description, right? Yeah, he's trying to be this self-made man to define his narrative. And... What you realized in the Depression, I think, or many people did, and you realized by that narrative, is that narrative is very fragile. One thing goes wrong, and that idea of, you know, I made my wealth, you know, becomes an empty narrative. And particularly for someone who's a big dreamer, but also can never capitalize on it. I do, I love that description. That's a really good pullout. What else? What else do we know? Mildred likes to bake, absolutely. That's going to become a huge part of this plot as we move forward, right? Mildred not only likes to bake, she's really Very good, good baker. Yeah. She becomes a, becomes a fortune, right? Who else? What else? There's actually kind of some overtones with some of the stuff we've been talking about in other books, right? What about Mildred Pierce's neighbor? Mrs. Gessler. Mrs. Gessler. What do we know about her? She's like a kind of a good friend. 
She's a really good friend. She takes care of her. But there's also this other cultural context. She's like rich. She's rich. And how is she rich? Bootlegging. Bootlegging. Her husband, like, that's why she's always coming over the liquor. Yeah, but, 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 and we got to remember, this is 31. Prohibition is still in place. It's got another year or two left. And so Gessler is making her money and her fortune because her husband's got a, a trucking business that runs liquor to and from. I think from San Pedro to somewhere else. So there's that interesting kind of moment where we see the other side of, you know, prohibition and that whole kind of moving this alcohol was widespread. There's another interesting note that I remember. When he first, when Herbert Pierce first got this land, what was it? It was a ranch, right? And when the, and he worked on it. In 29, right, what happened? No, when the, pro, when the, not 29, we know what happened. The stock market crashed. But when the ranch first happened, what was on the ranch? What were they growing? Grapes, right? And what did he decide to do? Take a start. He's gonna. I'm not going to start a vineyard, right? Because what happened? Prohibition. Prohibition. But what did he not realize from the beginning? Everyone wanted alcohol. <laughs> like having grapes, made, he would have made a fortune if he kept his grapes. Which actually goes to your point, Jess. He was not only you know a man of circumstance that this stuff fell to him. He was a terrible businessman in some ways, right? He made all the wrong decisions, you know? And rather than staying in grapes thinking that, oh, there might be some demand for this because everyone and their mother's going to want alcohol, he actually got rid of them, right? And hence couldn't make a money. Luckily, someone came his way and wanted to divide up and make his property what? A subdivision, a suburb. So what we're looking at here, and there's an interesting point where they say it in the book, and I love this. Um, is they actually try and describe what's happening with the subdivisions. And I'm really kind of ca caught up. Yeah, let's go to page 9. It's a good point. I'm caught up with this because I love the way California is so new for most of the readers, even in 40 or 39. When, this, when was this book first published? I would think it was like 39. Um, actually, copyright is 41. Sorry. Um, look at this. In 41, still so new that look at this analogy of the time and place. And this is at the top of page nine. He had, in truth, seen better days. In his teens, he had been a stunt rider for the movies and was still vain of his horsemanship. Then, an uncle had died and left him a ranch on the outskirts of Glendale. So, as Jess said, a wealth by inheritance. Glendale is now an endless suburb, bearing the same relation to Los Angeles as Queens bears to New York. Like, notice that. A, they're calling Queens a suburb, which it's not anymore. It's a borough. It's a city. But this idea of trying to help you understand what L.A. is like by comparing it to something you would know a lot better, like Queens, which gives you an idea of how new this development in urban sprawl that we now understand as L.A. was. Right? This is a completely new development. Now, so we're seeing a kind of the city of self of L.A. grow up beneath us. And goes on, but at the time it was a village and a pretty scrubby village at that with a freight yard at one end, open country at the other, and a car track down the middle. And they'll talk about the developers coming in and trying to split up this land, which actually reminds me of another classic noir that actually was filmed or was directed and created by Roman Polanski in 1974. How many of you have ever heard of Chinatown? One, two. Yeah, don't be ashamed. It's a great film. What happens in Chinatown? What's the, oh, you, you've heard of it, but you've never seen it? No one's seen it? Okay. Go do yourself a favor. You want to see a great film? You want, you're here at college to like experience great culture, and luckily you're sitting in a room of a guy who knows great culture, yes. right? You're lucky for that, oh, yeah. right? 
Count you, knock on wood, count your blessings. You could have got someone who had no idea of culture. So this is luck. So let me give you some of that luck right now. Jack Nicholson plays J.J. Giddis. J.J. Giddis is a detective in L.A. And the whole story is about this very development of the suburbs of L.A. What they're trying to do in Chinatown is figure out how they get water from the northern suburbs of Los Angeles into the city. Because what do we know about Los Angeles after reading Ask the Dust? It's what? It's dry. It's a? It's a desert. It's a desert on the sea, right? And what do you need in a, in a desert? Water. You need water. So Chinatown is a brilliant noir, and it's called a neo-noir because it takes place outside of the predefined idea from like the 30s to the 50s. But what it does is it looks at L.A. through a political lens of how these mobsters were actually working together and developers to get water and buy up all these ranches and steal basically all this land from all these people to create the city we know as L.A. And that film is supposed to take place in 1937. So right around the time, actually, this is happening. And so Chinatown is another great kind of noir film that plays on this idea of land, the development of L.A., and also the kind of crooked politics that go into the development. <coughs> Actually, Chinatown deals explicitly with water. And then there's the two Jakes, which dealt with, I don't know if it was land or development. And then there's a third one that never got made. So there's going to be a trilogy that dealt with this. But because the second one, the first one was brilliant, Chinatown. The second and third one sucked. Well, the second one sucked. And then the third one was never got made because of the second one. But it was an interesting trilogy dealing with the development of L.A. So... And this is kind of what Mildred Pierce is dealing with right here. So an interesting kind of another take on this idea of L.A. as the city as it was developed and the narratives that build into that. So, excellent. What else? Well, let's start looking at some specifics, right? Um, we could talk about um, the homes that were built for the people, right? Pierce homes are for folks, and what's good enough for folks is good enough for me. The fact he lived there. They talked about the, the money in AT&T, Black Thursday. That's the first we really hear about the Depression and that happening. Um, <laughs> let's look at Mrs. Gessler, because Mrs. Gessler is really interesting, and it's going to actually frame us for some of the things that we know are happening in Mildred's life, right? We might want to actually look where Mildred and um, Mr. Pierce have their first argument, right? Let's go there. This is pages six and seven. And we could go through this pretty quickly. And this will set us up for Gessler. <laughs> so what's happening between Mildred and her husband? What's the situation? She's doing all the work, right? She's the one who's making the cakes. And he's doing what? We see him in the beginning of the book that we read. What is he doing? He's leisurely taking care of the lawn, whistling. There's a beautiful description of how their, their, their uh, bathroom is like state-of-the-art, almost transcendental. How utility the bathroom is. Talking about this American vision of utility and functionary versus this kind of aesthetic of the West. So they're fighting over the fact that he's not making any money. And she's basically the breadwinner. And they're, you know, what did most people fight about when they start getting married and having children? Probably money, right? It's, so let's look at this. Page six. Let's go 
he said this with quiet complacency, asking what he did. I did, I watered it, and then he said with quiet complacency, for he had set a little trap for her. She had fallen into it, but the silence that had fallen had a slightly ominous feel to it, as though he himself might have fallen into a trap that he wasn't aware of. Uneasily, he added, gave it a good wetting down. So who wants to read from there? Pretty early for watering the grass, isn't it? Okay, Jillian. Pretty early for watering the and grass. And read loud. Pretty early for watering the grass, isn't it? Oh, one time's as good as another. Most people, when they water the grass, wait till later in the day when the sun's not so hot and it'll do some good and not be a waste of good water that somebody else has to pay for. Who, for instance? I don't see anybody working around here but me. You see any work I can do that I don't do? So you get done early. Come on, Mildred, what are you getting at? She's waiting for you, so go on. <coughs> Who's waiting for me? I think you know. If you're talking about Maggie Biederhoff, I haven't seen her for a week, and she never did mean a thing to me except somebody to play rummy with when I had nothing else to do. That's practically all the time, if you ask me. I wasn't asking you. What do you do with her? Play rummy with her a while, and then unbutton that red dress she's always wearing without any brassiers under it, and flop around the bed? Then have yourself a nice sleep, and then get up and see if there's some cold chicken in her icebox. Then play rummy some more, and then flop around the bed again? Gee, that must be swell. I can't imagine anything nicer than that. Okay, stop. What do you guys they make of that? Saying rummy, or do they mean <clears throat> what do they mean by rummy there? Card game. Card game, yeah. 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 Just and they might mean rummy, rummy, like drinker. But I don't know. I haven't seen the red nose. What do you make of this passage? I starred this one. <laughs> My marginalia was at its peak. What's going on here? She's bitter, but she's also, what do we know about, you know, Mildred right away? She's assertive. She's assertive, right? She's not going to take his crap. This is not some kind of, you know, meek, I'll do what you say, I understand that you're busy, go for it, do what you want, right? You know, she's stepping up and she's like, look, I know what you're doing, I'm not stupid. And she even goes into pretty intense detail, right? <laughs> like unbuttoning the dress. Like, I love how they're not afraid. Like, as a relationship, they're not afraid to talk pretty openly about the fact of, you know, who's cheating on who or what the situation is, right? She's out front with it. And what is his response? What can he say? Oh, all right. His tightening face muscles showed his temper was rising, and he opened his mouth to say something. Then he thought better of it. Why? Because he's right. right. Yeah, and she's right. he's about to get a smackdown, probably, right? Because he doesn't really have much. There's a point later on in the book where she says, I feel bad for him. Remember that? Why does she feel bad for him? Because she's basically picked him bone dry. Like, he hasn't had, you know, he has no, he's not on equal footing with Mildred. Mildred is a much tougher character. It's one of the things I like about it. And so we go on. Then presently said, oh, all right, in what was intended to be a lofty, resigned way, and started out the kitchen. Wouldn't you like to bring her something? Bring her? What do you mean? Well, there was some batter left over. I made up some little cakes I was saving for the children. But as fat as she is, she must like sweets. And here, I'll wrap them up for her. <laughs> I mean, this is downright, you know, she's being pretty brutal. Like, she's laying it on. And this is like the first we really get to know Mildred. So now let's look back on page... Nine. Well, let's, we looked. We looked at that. Let's go to eleven. Actually, no. Let's go to thirteen. And I, this is one of my favorite lines in the in the book. And this is when Mrs. Geller and Mildred are talking. And this is when basically Mildred tries to tell Mrs. Geller basically what's happening and what has happened at this point. 
separated. The separator, right? She kicked him out. There's no more Herbert. He's out. He's a he's a a nun such, and she can't have him in the house anymore because he's not pulling his weight. Who wants to start? Tell Bird I said hello at the top of page thirteen. Who wants to read that? Great, Leo, and read loud, loud <coughs> and proud. Loud. <laughs> Tell Bert I said hello. I will. Miss G Geller stopped. What's the matter? Nothing. Come on, baby. Something is wrong. What is it? Bert's gone. You mean for good? Just now. He left. Walked out on you? Just like that? He got a little help, maybe. It had to come. Well, what do you know about that? And that floppy-looking frump he left you for. How can he even look at her? She's what he wants. But she doesn't even wash. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite one. Um, oh, what's the use of talking? If she likes him, all right. Then she is what him. Bird's all right. And it wasn't his fault. It was just uh, everything. And they did fast. I necked him. He said, and he ought to know. But I can take things lying down. I don't care if we got a depression or not. If she can, then they ought to get along fine. Because that is exactly the way he's built. But I have got my own ideas. And I can change them even for him. Okay. I'm going to keep have you keep reading, Leo, but let's stop for a second. So what do you know about... Mildred here. She she, yeah, she's really kind of somewhat compassionate. As much as she lays into him, she doesn't blame him. What, what does she understand has happened? They just kind of fell apart. Fell apart, the depression, the money. And she goes back when she's trying to get jobs, like goes back and says how early she got married and raises kids and things like that. That's right. And then she, gets to find her own. What do we know? That's a good point. What do we know about how she got married? What do we know about how she got... She was pregnant before she even graduated. She, yeah, and before she was 18. 18. She wasn't even legal. You know, so there's that whole thing. And where did they actually have their rendezvous? In one of the model homes. I think the one where she started a restaurant. So there's this interesting kind of moment. But you're right. She was young, 17, and had two kids. I mean, at the time of this novel's taking place, she's 28. She's not particularly old, right? But she has two kids... You know, she's gone through the depression, and she's starting from scratch. And there's that great scene we'll look at when she actually goes around to the, to the employers and tries to get jobs. And there's that one hard-boiled woman who we'll look yeah. at who's great. Turner, I think her name is. This is Turner. She's amazing. Um, but, yeah, so excellent. And we also know that she's not, not only holding a grudge, but she can't. He's sitting down and taking this, but she can't. She wants to fight it, right? We have the, she's got the interest coming due on the house. But she's not going to sit still. Right? So from the beginning, Mildred's like, you know, we see it again and again. I'm not going to stand for this. You know? She's a strong woman. Leo, keep reading. Okay. What are you going to do? What am I doing now? A grim silence fell on both women. Then Mrs. Geller shook her head. Well, you have joined the biggest army on earth. You're the great American institution that never gets mentioned on 4th of July. A grass widow with to small children to support. 
the dirty bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes on with that. And Gessler's awesome. Dirty bastards. You know, she's got this whole campaign about men, right? And that she tries to get her going with Wally. Remember, get them connected so that they can have, she can have a, another man, which doesn't work out. But what is this idea, the grass widow? What does that mean? It's actually a term of the era, and I looked it up. And it basically is a woman who's divorced or abandoned, right? And the mother of a child born out of wedlock, which she's not, but she's basically been divorced or separated from her husband. But there's that moment, you've joined the biggest army on earth. What is the biggest army on earth? Middle class? Yeah, you're the great American institution that never gets mentioned on 4th of July. The woman who's doing what? Taking care of, the Taking care of her family, raising her children without a husband, right? There's this whole idea that there's this army of women who are raising children without husband, without support. And there's this interesting kind of question that this is what never gets celebrated on the 4th of July. What never gets discussed as an American institution is these strong women who are raising their children in absence of a man. This is kind of fascinating. I mean, Gessler's telling this alternative history of America. And at the heart of it, who's the hero? Mildred, right? Women in general, especially those ones who were laboring on while their nonsuch husbands are having sex with the women who don't wash, right? I mean, there's this kind of really interesting kind of subtle narrative, well, not so subtle narrative, of Mildred as part of this alternative vision that Kane's picking up on. And it just really starts to, to build as the narrative itself goes on. I mean, it's really compelling the way, you know, Mildred Pierce gets drawn here by Kane. Um, and then the dirty bastards, like you said, all men are dirty bastards. And it's funny, because it could have easily taken that tone, right? Where Wally was a dirty bastard, right? Or Bert was a dirty bastard. But as you read on in the book, are any of them? They're not. She remains friends with them. Even though she has an affair briefly with Wally, right, he still helps her get up on her feet and start the restaurant. Right? There's not this kind of long-standing enmity or kind of tragic position between Mildred and any of her ex-lovers or her husband. Well, until, of course, we get to the end of the novel. But in the meantime, you know, this isn't set up in some didactic way where it's men versus women. Like you said early on, she understands the complexity of the moment. The time, the depression, you know, the stock market, a whole series of kind of moments came together to create the situation they're in. But we would be remiss if we didn't talk about someone else. And I think we have to start talking about them early, right? And we will in a second. But let's see. Kicks Bird out. It's not his fault. There's a great description of Mildred on 21 when she's sitting down actually... <laughs> this really description of her is fascinating to me. Um, talking about her hips and her looking herself in the mirror. Um, that's on page 21, and Mildred's figure got her attention in any crowd, in all crowds. Anyone want to read that passage? Okay. Yes. No. And then, Brennan, you'll read next. And Mildred's figure got her attention in any crowd, in all crowds. She had a soft, childish, ne childish neck that perked her up, her head up at a pretty angle. Her shoulders drooped, but gracefully. Her brassiere ballooned a little with an extremely seductive burden. Her hips were small, like Vita's, 
and suggested a, a girl rather than a woman who had borne two children. Her legs were really beautiful, and she was quite vain of them. Only one thing about them bothered her, but it bothered her constantly, and it had bothered her ever since she could remember. In the mirror, they were flawlessly slim and straight, as, but as she looked down on them directly, something about their contours made them seem bowed. She ha so she had taught herself to bend one knee when she stood, and, so, and to take short steps when she moved, bending the rear knee quickly, so that the deformity, if it actually existed, couldn't be noticed. This gave her a menacing feminine walk. Like the ponies in a Broadway course, she didn't know it, but her bottom switched in a wholly provocative way. Let me make this description of Mildred. You're right, and there's that awesome, that look in your eyes. What do they call it? They have a specific, Mildred has, you know, they talk about her legs, you know, they talk about, but then there's something that's more definitive than any of the physical attributes, and it's that look in her eyes, and they have a particular name for it. What's it called? She looks at you in a particular way. No? What is it? Who said that? It's a, it's a squint. Talk about the squint she has, right? And, like, you know what a squint is? This is a squint. When your kind of eyes are down, it's like, what the hell is going on? Like, I just can't see Mildred with a squint. Like, and it's like this all-knowing squint. Like, when she gets the squint, people know. They see the real Mildred. And I love this squint. So even more than her physical attributes, which are kind of... There's also this point at the, when she... What is the problem she has with her physical attributes? Yeah, she doesn't know or not if her legs, she thinks her legs are bowed, but she can't tell because when she looks straight down, they look bowed to her, right? And there's a point in the narrative, I don't know if you remember when, when she says they're not bowed. Like she she's basically, laying bed, she's laying with Wally in bed. She's seeing him, she's like, she's wiggling her toes. She's like, they're not actually bowed. Not, and there's that moment of like self-affirmation. And that's a moment that happens again and again. You know, Mildred's, in the first half of this novel, she's seen some tough times. You know, to be completely penniless, to have, you know, two children that you're surviving for. And when she's going to look for jobs, we find out she's starving, right? She gets dizzy. She goes into the restaurant where she ultimately takes the job. You know, but here's a woman really on the edge of forever trying to survive. You know, and she's keeping it together, but just barely. And we're going to talk about someone who may not be helping her, you know. And let's go to Chapter 2 and talk a little bit about my second favorite character, <laughs> in the book is uh, I think, uh, oh just a quick moment um, 31 30 31 this is when Wally and and uh, Mildred have an affair and this comes up again and again um, they talk about you know because what are, what do they think what do men immediately think about Mildred not Mildred but people in Mildred's situation and Miss Gessler gets her ready for this they're desperate but they're also Hardworking? No. Wally thinks she's going to be, according to Mrs. Gessler, easy, fast, right? I mean, they already have kids, right? This is kind of like this whole idea this is going to be the fast woman. 
And they ultimately, Wally and, and Mildred do have a relationship on and off. But on page 30 into 31, there's this interesting point where we start to see this again about uh, Mildred. Um, you want to read this, uh, even forgotten the price, Brenna. I'm on the bottom of 30. And Wally, he's not paid up even a bit. He even forgot to ask the price of the chips, right? You see that? That's on the bottom of 30. It's midway to that last Yeah. He'll find out in another thing this way is quick. And the last I heard of you, you were up against it. Try, you play it. Um, and Wally, he's not paid up even a little bit. He even forgot to ask the price of the chips. He'll find out. And another thing, this way is quick. And the last I heard of you, you were up against it and couldn't afford to waste much time. You play it right, and inside of a week, your financial situation will be greatly eased. And inside of a month, you'll have him begging for the chance to buy that divorce. The other way, making the grand tour of all the speakers he knows, it could go on for five years. And even though you couldn't be sure. Okay, so what is Miss Gessler doing? Trying to set her up for success. Right, she's trying to basically say, don't go out to speakeasies and get drunk. Because he's going to have what he wants and he's going to go away. So her recommendation is what? Cook him dinner. Cook him dinner. Get him drunk. Keep it home. You get him drunk. And then he'll want your food and he'll come back for more. So this is kind of like her sage advice, right? And in response to all this, what does Mildred say? You think I want to be kept. Think I want to be kept. And what does Gessler say? Yes. yes. And this is a theme that comes up throughout the beginning, right? Like, Mildred, does Mildred ultimately want to be a, get, a kept woman? No. I mean, that's one of the things that's awesome about Mildred. She doesn't want to be kept. She doesn't want to depend upon other people for her livelihood, and particularly for Veda's kind of appetites, right? She wants to provide it. And there's that tension that immediately starts off. Even Turner says to her, and we'll look at the hard boils. Turner says, you know what you can, you, what, you know what, you know how much talent you have? None. You know what you need to do? Get some. Go out and find a man. Yeah, she's like, you're still pretty hot. You're young enough, right? You still have some sex appeal. Do it now. So there's this interesting world in which Mildred is, you know, navigating with it. And it's interesting how this book sets it up again and again. You know, Against all odds. So let's keep going. So there's that, and that comes up again and again. Um, so we, this is the point with Wally, and we don't need to go with that. Let's skip to chapter three. I can't help. This is me. This I. I don't know if you guys have moments like this when you read on page forty. This was an awesome term I haven't heard, and I've been dying to write about it. This is when she's going on her searches for jobs, right? And she looks in the newspaper. And this is something like we could relate to Craigslist now. This is in the middle of that. She left feeling sullen over her wasted afternoon. So she goes, someone ad advertises that he's a writer and he needs someone to help, right? She left feeling sullen over her wasted afternoon and wasted bus fare. It was her first experience with the sexological advertiser, though she would come to find out he was fairly common. Usually he was some phony calling himself a writer or an agent or a talent scout who had found out that for a dollar and a half's worth of newspaper space, he could have a day-long procession of girls at his door, all desperate for work, all willing to do almost anything to get it. But this sexological advertiser. A, I love the term. You know, are you a sexological advertiser? I think that's a new thing that we should try and bring back. Not that you should be sexological yeah. advertisers, but we should talk about the creepy sexological advertisers out there. What do you think about this kind of little, like, factoid? It almost seems a throwaway. 
And let's sit down for a second and look. What's happening in here? It's kind of setting the scene and showing how hard it is for any woman to get a job. Yeah. Let alone some and, children. and not only the predators out there, right? I mean, predators out there feeding off this, feeding off their desperation. Saying they have work, but really don't. And so this is kind of this interesting, it seems throwaway. But when you think about the situation Mildred finds herself in, and not only demeaning, but in some ways dangerous. It's, a, it's kind of a fascinating little factoid that's a throwaway and you get, and then she goes on. But I really love that whole, the idea of the sexological advertiser. I don't think that term has ever been used again. We should Google it. But I'm, I'm compelled by that. Because, you know, that's the whole thing, like, you know, Craigslist and all these other things, like, people freak out about, right? the sexological advertiser. But it's been around since newspaper. This isn't new to the web, people. This has been here, even since Mildred Pierce. Okay. What do we learn? We learn a couple of things about Mildred, and this is where it starts to come clear in chapters 4 and 5. <coughs> Mildred starts searching for jobs, right? What do we learn about Mildred in the process? She's very proud. Very proud. And when do we learn that first? When she turns on the first serving job she gets, she said, why won't she do it? She doesn't want to wear a uniform, right? And who do we know she's responding to? Vita, right? And we'll talk about Vita and Vita's antics. But Vita is this figure in this book that over time just gets larger than life. And this whole idea of her pride, right? And the other thing is, so she won't wear the costume. She gets a second job interview, right? Housekeeping. The housekeeping, right? And what happens there? She's ready to almost take that. Turn, Miss Turner turns her on. Children aren't allowed to intermingle, and they have to use the back entrance. And she's like, Vita would never do that. She would leave and go back with Claire. That's right. You know, she Mildred, too much pride. She's in a situation. Back entrance. Kids can't play with the rich kids, right? And that class system we say that doesn't exist in America really starts playing itself out. And you start seeing, you know, she's in a bad situation. On her way back from that second trip, though, what does she do? She takes a job as a waitress. She swallows her pride. She basically says, I got to provide at some point. And then we get the whole narrative of her building her own, um, building her own kind of uh, business. And we'll get to that in a second. But before, I want to spend a time, because there's a point here at which I think Kane does a really good job on pages 44 and 45 when we deal with this character, Miss Turner of framing out this idea of hard-boiled, even uses the term. And Cain hated the idea of being categorized. So as a writer, he hated the idea that people called him a hard-boiled writer. He didn't agree with the term. He didn't agree with it as a category. He thought it was kind of a useless way to categorize his work. But nonetheless, for many, he became the definitive hard-boiled writer of the 40s and 30s. So um, at least these three novels, Mildred Pierce, Postman Always Rings Twice, and Double Indemnity. So this is a really brilliant example of what some people would call hard-boiled text. And this is actually featuring Mrs. Turner, right? That's her name? Okay, Miss Turner, sorry. So we're at 44. Let's actually start reading 44 and into 45. Who wants to read? Someone who hasn't read yet. Jess? And you're going to read loud and proud? Okay. Miss Turner, who had a small suite in one of the downtown office buildings, turned out to be a trim little person, not so much older than Mildred. A little on the hard-boiled side. Okay, let's, let's stop for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm a big fan of yours, Jesse, and I would not do that. <laughs> but I want you to think, after Jesse reads, what exactly is this idea of hard-boiled? 
that he brings up here. Let's, let's try and get at this term a little bit. We've been kind of dancing around it for weeks. Let's, let's, let's engage it. Let's try and bet it. <laughs> okay, anyway. She smoked her cigarette in a long water with which she waved Mildred to a small desk and without looking up, told her to fill out a card. Mildred, remembering to write neatly, furnished what seemed to her an absurd amount of information about herself from, from her age, weight, height, and nationality to religion, education, and exact marital status. Most of these questions struck her as irrelevant and some of them as impertinent. However, she answered them. When she came to the question, what type of work desired, she hesitated. What type of work did she desire? Any work that would pay her something, but obviously she couldn't say that. She wrote receptionist. As in the case of dietitian, she wasn't quite sure what it meant, but it had caught her ear these last few weeks, and at least an authoritative sound to it. Then she came to the great yawning spaces in which she was to fill in the names of and addresses of her former employers. Regretful, she, regretfully, she wrote, not previously employed. Then she signed the card, walked over, and handed it in. Miss Turner waved it to a chair, studied the card, shook her head, and pitched on the desk. You haven't got a chance. Why not? Do you know what a receptionist is? I'm not sure, but a receptionist is a lazy vein that can't do anything on earth, and she wants to sit out in front where everybody can watch her do it. She's the one in the black silk dress, cut low in the neck and high in the legs, just inside the gate, in front of that little one-position switchboard that she gets the right number out of now and then, most of them. You know, the one that yells you to have a seat, Mr. Dokes will see you in just a few minutes. Then she goes on showing her legs and polishing her nails. If she sleeps with Dokes, she gets 20 bucks a week. If not, she gets 12. In other words, nothing personal about it, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but by the looks of this card, I'd say this was you. Good. All right, so here's our first. I mean, this dialogue, right? We see Miss Turner, right? What is she talking about? How is she framing? A, what is she saying about Mildred Pierce? She's not cut out for anything. There's a chance. She's not cut out for it. She has no previous work, right? Then she says she wants to be a receptionist. And then Miss Turner goes into this brilliant kind of indictment of receptionists, right? And I don't know about you, but I hear a lot of the kind of very hard-boiled dialogue that we see in Double Indemnity, right? And Raymond Chandler was behind, who's also a great detective writer, he's behind a lot of that. And you start to see Kane in this kind of, the way in which his characters frame it, right? For example, and Jess read it perfectly. Um, you know the one that tells you to have a seat? Mr. Dokes will see you in just a minute. Then she goes on showing her legs and polishing nails. If she sleeps with Dokes, she gets 20 bucks a week. If not, she gets 12. In other words, nothing personal about it. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but the looks of this cards, I say that was you, right? And on one position switchboard, when she gets it right, number out of now and then, mostly then, right? I mean, it's kind of, what do you think about this? Not only Turner as a character, but this kind of dialogue, this kind of writing. I mean, what makes it hard-boiled? Because there's a point later on that we'll look at where we kind of get to it, I think, or at least Keynes does. What, what's hard-boiled about it? What does that mean? It's like really bl uh, blunt. Very blunt, right? And what about Turner? Like... You know, she's being blunt, she's being honest, and what else? She gets right to the point. Right to the point, and nothing personal, right? right? It doesn't become part of her. She's hard, she's got a thick skin. This is how it is, sister. You don't have a chance. Go find a husband. You're out, right? And it's usually, that's like you said, this kind of very witty, facile dialogue, right? That moves very quickly and nicely. So let's go down. Um, she nodded. I'm sure you'll sleep fine. So let's go to that. Um, Jess, you want to keep reading? It's quite all right. I feel I, feel, I sleep fine. So what is she? What is what is Mildred Pierce saying there? 
I'll only sleep over that. Right. You got to do what you got to do, which are really pretty intense. <laughs> Keep reading, Jeff. It's quite all right. I sleep fine. If this rubato had any effect on Miss Turner, there was no sign of it. She nodded and said, I'm sure you sleep fine, don't we all? But I'm not running a house of call. And it just happens that at the moment, many, receptions, many receptionists are out. That was then, in those good old days, when even a hawk shop had to have this receptionist thing out there in front to show it had class. But then they found out she wasn't strictly necessary. They began sleeping with their wives. And I guess it worked out all right. Anyway, the birth rate went up, so I guess we're, you're out of luck. Okay. What about that? Part two. Any reactions to this? What was the receptionist all about, according to Ms. Turner? Yeah. Not even sleeping with men, right? What was it about? Sleeping with the boss, but even more. It's like a stupid status symbol, right? Even pawn shops had receptionists, right? Just to have them, right? And when they found out that, hey, life goes on without them, what did, what did the husband started doing? That's a great kind of, like, quick narrative about the history of why receptionists are not useful. Yeah, the birth rate went up and everything worked out. I mean, this is kind of brilliant, very witty, but notice, one of the things I love is, if this bravado had any effect on Miss Turner, there was no sign of it. For me, that's something where Miss Turner finally does get penetrated early on by some of the stories by Mildred Pierce. But one of the things about Hard Boyle that seems to come across, too, is this. This idea of there being no sign of it. No sign of having an effect on someone, right? Someone being strong to the point that anything you do really can't penetrate, can't get through to them. There's this interesting, like, she has a quick report, but it didn't matter. She kept on going, right? And then go on. Uh, receptionist isn't the only thing I can do. Receptionist isn't the only thing I can do. Yes, it is. You don't give me much chance to tell you. If there was something else you could do, you would put it down in great big letters right on this card. When you say receptionist, that's all I want to know. There's no more after that. There's no use of wasting my time and me wasting yours. I'll follow your card, but I told you once, I'm telling you again. You haven't got the chance. Boom. And that's the interview, right? Miss Turner, down to the line. Now, here's, let's go over to page 46, 47, right? And this is where they go into the homemakers and Mildred's kind of um, inadequacy in that, right? And Miss Turner, seeing the flicker, I said, I thought so. Now take a look at the other drawers. She goes through, this is a brilliant, let's read this because I love this. Who wants to start reading in the middle of, well, let's start at uh, the first full paragraph in 46. Miss Turner pulled out a lot of drawers. See that? Yes, awesome. Barrage. Uh, Miss Turner uh, pulled out a lot of drawers and set them in a row on her desk. They were filled with cards of different colors. Looking intently at uh, Mildred, she said, I told you you're not qualified. Okay, you can take a look here and see what I mean. These three drawers are employers, people that call me when they want somebody. And they call me too. Uh, they call me because I'm on the level with them and save them a lot of trouble. Save them the trouble of talking to looks like you. You see the pink ones? That means uh, no Jews. You have blues, no Gentiles. Not many, not many of them, uh, but a few. That's got nothing to do with you, uh, but it gives you an idea. People have sold over this desk just like the cows in Chicago yards, and for exactly the same reason, they got the points the buyer wants. All right, now take a look at something that does concern you. See those greens? That means no married women. Why, uh, may I ask? Because right in the middle of a rush hour, you have one full of little homemakers that have a habit of getting a call that Willie's got the coop and out you run, and maybe you come back next, the next day. 
and maybe you come back next week. Somebody has to look after Willie. Uh, these people, these employers on the greens, they're not much interested in Willie. Another habit you wonderful homemakers have got is running up a lot of bills you saw friend, husband would pay, and then uh, he wouldn't, you had to get, oh, and when he wouldn't, you had to get a job. And then the first paycheck you draw, there's 18 attachments on it, about too short, life's too short. Do you, call, uh, do you call that fair? I call them green. I go by the cards. I don't owe a cent. Not one. Moses saw guiltily of the interest that, would, that was due on uh, July 1st. Miss Turner, seeing the flicker in her eye, said, I thought so. I'll take a look at these other drawers. They're all applicants. These are stenographers, a dime a, dime a dozen. But at least they can do something. They, these are qualified secretaries. A dime a dozen, too, but they rate a different file. These are stenographers with scientific experience. Nurses, laboratory assistants, chemists, all able to take charge of the clinic or run an office with three or four doctors or do hospital work. Why I, Why would I recommend you ahead of any of them? Good. So why would I recommend... And here's another point. When she goes, do you call that fair? Right? And that's what Mildred asked. Do you call that fair? And what is her response? You call them green. Yeah. Call them fair. Call them green. I go by the card. There's no moral notion of fairness or not. This is how it is, right? If you're a Jew, you're not going to get hired by someone. If you're a Gentile, you're not going to get hired by someone. If you're a woman and you have children, you're not going to get hired. And here's why. Is it fair? I don't care. That's not my call. It's the way it is. And this kind of framing, I mean, brilliant, this brilliant scene of framing basically the situation that Mildred finds herself in. But there's funny. And she even goes on at the end of 47. She says, there's not a thing on earth you can do. And I hate people that can't do anything. Right? And this is hard to a face. Like, you can't do anything and I hate you for it. Right? How do I qualify that? But what's interesting to me, and I kind of found this fascinating, is go back, go to 49. Right? And you have from one woman to another. Now, Miss Turner is actually, you know, really kind of powerful, hard-boiled woman who's working as a kind of, you know, what she says, dealing with the cattle of people looking for a job. There's a really brilliant indictment of capitalism here too, right? They don't care about who you are. This is not about being fair. You're cattle. And they want certain things in their cattle. If they don't have it, they're not going to get you. I mean, they talk about the job market and the idea of this is not a kind of rosy picture. This is an exchange of animals. That's kind of a, I mean, there's a dark vision there and a deep critique of the system, too, if you think about it long enough. But let's go to 49, because here's this uncaring, hard-boiled woman, Miss Turner. But this is when she gives her advice, and this is on the bottom of 49. Listen, this is just one woman's opinion, and they'd be all wrong. I've got my own little business, and it's all shot, and I'm just about holding my own if I eat in the tea rooms instead of the Biltmore. But if that goes... And I have to choose between my belly and my pride. I'm telling you now, I'm picking my belly every time. I mean it. I had to wear a uniform. I'd do it. I'll go over there as a courtesy to you. For the first time, Miss Turner departed from her hard-boiled manner and showed some sign of annoyance. What have I got to do with it? Either you want this place or you don't. If you don't, just say so. And all i got to do is call her up and tell her. And that lets me out. But if you do want it, for God's sake, get over there and act like you mean it. I'll go as a courtesy to you. And that's that one moment where even Kane notices that she breaks her hard-boiled stance. And what is the hard-boiled stance? Like, what does she break free from? Indifference. Indifference, right? 
in some ways this kind of not caring. Part of breaking up the hard-boiled is she actually shows some compassion for another woman and saying, you know, basically understanding potentially that it's hell out there for us. And like, break, I understand you have your pride, but deal with it because this is the system within which we exist. And like Mrs. Gessler, she's trying to give Mildred advice of how to get ahead and deal with this. And more and more, as you start reading Mildred Pierce, and we'll talk about it on Thursday, I want to frame out this, fra this frame of gender as we're seeing it through Mildred Pierce and the development of Mildred Pierce, unlike her husband Herbert, who suggests he's a self-made businessman, but he's not. He never did anything. He had good luck, and then he had very bad luck. But he's not responsible for that either way. Mildred Pierce is a completely different beast. She actually did make her own luck. She, you know, her kid had just died and she's still baking pies that night. I mean, she is working. She's a working woman. And there's a kind of very interesting narrative that starts build around Mildred, right? The last thing I want to talk about, though, before we do break, and we will break shortly, is the hard-boiled scene is just too good for me to give that up. And think about this, because we will return to this at some point. Hint, hint. Anyway, um, can't say you weren't warned. Uh, let's go. Oh, brilliant. Let's look at the end of this chapter before we go and talk about Veda, because I want to end with Veda. But look at the end of chapter. This is the last quote in chapter three. Is that right? Are we still on chapter three? Yeah. 50, no, I don't think we are. We're on three. We're on three. Oh, that's yeah. a long one. 53 at the bottom. This is when she finally decides to take the job at the restaurant that she doesn't want. And she would not do this kind of work if she starved first. She put a dime on the table. She got up. She went to the cashier's desk and paid her check. Then, as though walking to the electric chair, she turned around, headed for the kitchen, meaning she was going to take the job. And I thought it was interesting, the kind of overtones of that, especially given our early talk in Double Indemnity about the execution and the questions that kind of get raised later in the novel. So, excellent. Um, let's look. There's a point where I wrote here in Marginalia, sex is a relief. And it's actually, you know, as she's going through... Um, some of the hard, the harder moments, um, she does actually talk about her relationship with Wally, not as love, but it's actually a relief for her. For it's very interesting as a woman to see her as her relationship with Wally is not only somewhat platonic, but sexually it's not about her falling on and head, head over heels, you know, unrequited. She has this sense of detachment. She has this sense of detachment to everything but Veda. There is no detachment from Veda. And it's interesting how Veda sounds a lot like Vader. Anyway, page 65. <laughs> Remember that Veda came before Vader, just so you know. Veda. What do we know about Veda? She talks eloquently, right? Another way to say that? Snobbish. She's very affected. Right? When she drinks the liquor, she has her little pinky out, right? When anyone has their pinky out when drinking anything, it's a good sign to run the other way. Right? That's a British tradition that we as Americans, I hope, do not do. Except for SpongeBob. Except for SpongeBob. I'm kidding. I don't even know if it's a British tradition. I just wanted to say it. 
<laughs> Leo, maybe it's a I, Russian tradition. I just got into trouble with the Russian mafia. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm kidding. The pinky, like the Apparently pinky that's tea. An some somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure okay. you're insulting. A lot of people do it without realizing well, it. Apparently, it's only formal for them to do it that way. Like, if you do it, like, casually out in public, it's an insult. It's an insult. Yeah. So, be careful where you put your pinky. <laughs> 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 I didn't even mean it to take this route, but it has. Let's talk a little bit about Vader. She's affected, right? What, what do we know, despite all the hard times that uh, Mildred has had, and she's had many, what has she always done? She's always bought milk for her kids and what? Okay, this piano lessons. You know, during the height of the depression, they got nothing, fifty cents a week, which <clears throat> seems like a fortune when you think about it. She's always got those piano lessons, right? Let's get a look. We're gonna take like, two quick looks at Veda and some of her issues. This is on page sixty-five, and this is at the top. At Veda's remark, Ray forgot about the sand bucket and began to shriek. Yes, Daddy, we're going to have a drink, right? This is that whole moment where. They have the drink. The kids have the drink, too. And Ray acts like a drunk. I like Ray. She's like, ah! Veda's so controlled and, like, so perfect. And Ray's just like that, you know, that kid is, like, dancing around in circles. She's being a kid. Yeah. (laughs) And Ray is, and and Veda is not. So who wants to start reading at Veda's remark? New readers? Yes, Laura, great. At Veda's remark, Ray forgot about the sand bucket and began to shriek. Yes, Daddy, we're going to have a drink. We're going to get drunk. When Bert said, I might be able to stand a drink if coaxed, Mildred knew the scotch was doomed. She went to the bedroom, got it out of the closet, went to the kitchen and opened it. She turned out ice cubes, set glasses on a tray, found the lone seltzer siphon that had been there since winter. When she was nearly done, Beta appeared. Can I help you, Mother? Who asked you to go snooping around my closet to find out whether there was any liquor in there or not? I didn't know there was any secret about it. And hereafter, I'll do the inviting. But mother, it's father. Don't stand there and look me in the eye and pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. You know you had no business saying what you did, and you knew it at the time. I could tell by the cheeky look on your face. Very well, mother. It shall be as you say. And stop that silly way of talking. But I remind you just the same, that there was none of this kind of stingingness when father was doing the inviting. Things have indeed changed here, and not for the better, alas. One moment, oh, one might think peasants had taken over the house. Do you know what a peasant is? A peasant is a very ill-bred person. Sometimes, Veda, I wonder if you have good sense. Good. So, what do we know about Veda? She's very proper. She's very proper. I mean, she's saying alas in a sentence. I mean, just to give you an idea. She acts like a person from the high society. Yeah, absolutely. Like she's rich or she's noble. She's kind of very proud, right? And she's also acting like everyone's been there. What do we learn about the way she treats Letty, her babysitter? Ordering her around, making her call her Miss Beta. Miss Beta. And she walks, she makes her walk behind her, right? So she walks, the, you know, Letty has to walk behind her. And when they get to a pool, what does she have to do? Can't go in. Can't go in. She has to go and watch. I mean... Veda is the ultimate bitch, right? I mean, let's face it. Like, she is unconscionable the way she treats other people. Everyone's beneath her. She's ultimately of the kind of the most elitist snob possible. There's none of this kind of stinginess. She's what? She's just being classy. She's just being classy? (laughs) Yeah, I I guess that's how it goes, huh? So, 
And how does she get at her mother? What does she say? There was none of this kind of stinginess when father was doing it. None of this stinginess when dad was here. I guess we've become peasants, right? And, you know, obviously Mildred's already dealing with her own pride, dressing up in a uniform and knowing how Veda... Everything Mildred won't do or doesn't want to do in some ways is reflected through Veda. Veda's inability to kind of, you know, accept it or her sense of class and pride. Now, there's another moment where we get a good look at Veda. Let's go to that before we end tonight. Um, give you... Go to... Like... Weeks. I love this one. This is on 78. This is a quick side note. When little orphan Annie, like, they tell her to do something to make sure that the Greek thinks that it's his ideas, that Mildred is now selling her cakes through the restaurant she works at. And I love this phrase. I'll take the Greek like Grant took Richmond. I want to say that now that we're in the South. I want to say that. Like Grant, like Grant took Richmond. <laughs> what do you think that will go over here? Okay, anyway. That's my new saying. Like Grant took Richmond. Anyway, 82 and 83. It's, I can see it's not getting too many laughs here. All right. Veda. Um, let's go who hollered and carry on. Okay, I'll, I'll read this. Who hollered and carry on? Miss Veda, ma'am. Miss Veda? She makes me call her that. And she told you to put that uniform on? Yes, am So she had to wear a uniform. Whose uniform is it? It's Mildred's. What has Mildred been doing? Like with the liquor. Hiding it. And where's Veda been? She's been up in her closet, right? Looking for it. Like, Veda's, <laughs> like, Veda's a character, like, one of those literary characters I would strangle in real life, right? Like, you want to strangle Veda. She is the worst, and she only gets worse. Okay. Yes, well, it's quite all right if that's how it happened. But you can take it off now. And hereafter, remember, I'm giving orders around here, not Miss Veda. Yes, of Mildred made her pies, and nothing more was said about it that afternoon or at dinner. Veda take no notice of Letty's. Okay, let's go down and see. Veda announced they were coming into the question of the uniform. Certainly, Mother, it's quite becoming to her, don't you think? This is Veda talking about Letty in the uniform. Never mind whether it's becoming or not. The first thing I want to know is this. Those uniforms were on top shelf of my closet under a pile of sheets. Now, how did you happen to find them? Mother, I needed a handkerchief and went to see if any of mine had been put on your things by mistake. In the closet? I had looked everywhere else, and all your handkerchiefs were in your own top drawer, and they still are. And you weren't even looking for any handkerchief at all. Once more, you were snooping into my things to see what you could find, weren't you? Mother, how could you insinuate such? Weren't you? I was not, and I resent the question. Veda looked Mildred in the eye with haughty, offending dignity. Mildred waited a moment, and then went on. And how did you happen to give one of those uniforms to Letty? I merely assumed, Mother, that you had forgotten to tell her to wear them. Evidently, they had been bought for her. If she was going to take my things to the pool, I naturally wanted her decently dressed. To the pool? What things? My swimming things, Mother. Little Ray laughed loudly, and Mildred stared bewildered. School being over, she had left a book of bus tickets so the children could go down and swim in the plunge at Griffith Park but that Letty was included in the excursion she had no idea. It quickly developed, however, that Veda's notion of a swim in the pool was for herself and Ray to go par parading to the bus stop, with Letty following two paces behind, all dressed up in uniform, apron, and cap. Can you see that this kid's a psychotic? And carrying the swimming bags. 
She even produced the cap, which Mildred identified as the collar of one of her own dresses. It had been neatly sewed so as to make a plausible white corona embroidered around the edges. They made their maid a little crown. Right? This is insane. I never heard of such goings-on in my life. Well, Mother, it seems to me wholly proper. Does Letty go in swimming? Certainly not. What does she do? She sits by the pool and waits, as she should. For Miss Veda, I suppose. She knows her place, I hope. Well, hereafter, there'll be no more Miss Veda, and if she goes with you to the pool, she'll go in her own clothes. She has a swim, and if she hasn't a suit, I'll get her one. Mother, it shall be as you say. Little Ray, who had been listening to all this with vast delight, now rolled on the floor screaming with laughter. That's all Ray does. I mean, it wasn't a major loss when she died. And kicking her heels in the air. She can't swim. She can't swim. And she'll get drowned. And Red will have to pull her out. He's a lifeguard. And he's stuck on her. Right? And it goes on and on. Uh, what I thought you were going to go to this point right here where she says... Uh, go to the point and you read <coughs> really, Mother, 84? it seems to me you made a great fuss over nothing. If you bought the uniforms for her, and I certainly can't imagine who else you could have bought them for, and why shouldn't she wait? Yeah. And then it says down here that... Where are you? But on Tell top us. of 84. 80, top of 84? Yeah. Good. And then, but Veda had slightly overdone it. And a flash from the special innocence from which she couldn't imagine who else the uniforms who could have been bought for. Mildred divined that she knew the truth. And that, and that meant the whole thing had to be dealt with fundamentally. Just that whole line, how she... And so it. what was Veda's purpose? To get at her mom. Right? It wasn't to have Letty go around in uniform to the pool. It was basically to make a mockery of her mother. And to bring her mother out on the floor that basically, you've been working hard, but beneath your station, to support us. And Veda will have nothing of it. I mean, there's this real deep sickness... How does Mildred ultimately convince Veda that what she's doing? What does she say to Veda that convinces her that maybe it's all right? Anyone remember? They're going to be rich. And what does she say she's working at the restaurant for now? Uh, she's like observing how they run exactly. the restaurant. She has to lie to her daughter. I'm not there to work to make the money. I'm observing how they run the restaurant so we can make our own and we could be rich. It's at that point that Veda turns on a dime and says, Oh, mother, I love you, right? And then you want to strangle her again because she is absolutely manipulating every element of the situation. And what's great is Mildred is this brilliantly strong woman, and they develop it over the first 100 to 150 pages. And you start to see so quickly her Achilles heel, and it's Veda. And it's one that, you know, the kind of plot of the story as it unwinds really takes us to where Veda and her mother have to come to some kind of, you know, situation in which they deal with this. So I want you to think about a couple of things as you, send, as you finish up and you start blogging about your reflections of the book and stuff. Think about the question of gender. It's brought up again and again. I tried to map out a few. Think about a question of what is the situation of someone like Mildred Pierce in the 30s? And how is Cain kind of framing her? You know, and how might this relate to other femme fatales we've seen? How is it similar? How is it different? I don't think we could call Mildred Pierce a femme fatale. Now, whether we could call Veda one is an interesting question we might want to experiment with and think about. The other thing is, who's the other character we haven't mentioned yet and we have to talk about? Ray. Ray, the dead Ray. We won't talk too much. Ray is dead. <laughs> she dies in case you haven't gotten there. Okay. Spoiler alert. The one, the rich guy. The rich guy. What's his name? I knew everyone else's name. Monty. Monty. Very good. Mon we're going to have to deal with Monty. And Monty's 
introduces a whole other element, too, to the narrative. Okay, so think about that. Think about questions of gender as we have dealt with them so far. We've seen a lot of very interesting women characters in these novels. What are some of the connections? What are some of the problems? And how do they develop? And then let's start talking about the end of this novel and looking some more deeply about that relationship between Mildred, Veda, and then the third, the X Factor, Monty. Okay. All right, great. Also, I didn't send out the email because, but I know I'm going to send out the two Wikipedia groups tonight. I also have Peter Catlin's um, presentation for the, the one he presented to us on, I think it was Thursday, and so I'll share that with you. Um, but I've been a bit behind on getting that email out, but I'll get it out tonight. And then on Thursday, we'll not only finish up on Mildred Pierce, but I'll send out to you a kind of brief example of what the midterm is going to be like, so you all can get an example. And we'll talk a bit at the end of class about the midterm, what you should be looking for. This is not a surprise test. If you've been doing the reading and the watching, it should come clearly, but we'll talk about the format on Thursday. Does that make sense? Okay. Have a great night, everybody.